I think in general, a lot of people play pretty well pre-flop to some extent, but then they really start messing up on the flop and then they really, really mess up on the turn in the river. But a lot of people do really want to pass the blame to someone else. They don't like accepting that their losses are their fault. For most people listening to this, most players you're playing against are going to have big holes in their game. So if you find general player pool tendencies that they, you know, things that they are doing wrong, you can probably just default to assuming they're going to make those mistakes. Yeah, be better and be lucky. That's all you need to do. Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. We are officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and this week we finish off with part two of our interview with Jonathan Little. As you know, Jonathan is one of those great players, great coaches, great authors, and just a phenomenal contributor to the Rec Poker Podcast. He's been doing something every week with us, and uh, this is the continuation of a, a more extensive interview that I had the chance of doing with Jonathan a couple of weeks back. So hopefully you will enjoy this as much as you enjoyed the first part of it. Uh, also, just a shout out, quick thanks to everybody who's been wearing the Rec Poker patches. I'm seeing them all around the place, which is super fun. Uh, I'm not a great promoter myself, so I appreciate those of you who are willing to wear the patch, tell people about it, uh, tell people where they can find it, which is pretty much anywhere, iTunes, Stitcher. They can find it on the Running Aces website, runaces.com slash rec poker. Um, so I appreciate everybody who's helping out in that way. Uh, we're getting closer and closer to Vegas. I'm super excited to be heading out there. Uh, we've got a group of six of us that are going out there, and undoubtedly we'll uh, talk to some more people while I'm out there. So I'm uh, really getting excited for that, and I think a lot of these interviews are really helping me prepare for that. So with that, uh, let's give a quick uh, commercial break for Running Aces, and then the next voice you'll hear after that will be that of Jonathan Little with part two of our interview. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit RunAces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. So this is maybe an unfair question, but as you look at you know all of the tournaments that you play and all the things that you've seen sort of evolve in the game over time, when you sit down at tournaments, what what are those things that you're still seeing less experienced players do that are are still those, those sort of those glare those glaring things that you say, yeah, that they're clearly making a mistake over and over again in this sort of realm. What what are those things? I think in general, a lot of people play pretty well pre-flop to some extent, but then they really start messing up on the flop, and then they really really mess up on the turn in the river, and that's because they have not had enough time. And they've not been in enough situations where they're playing to turn in the river. And this very often leads to a lot of recreational players um, vastly overplaying hands that they think are good, like top pair. Like say you're playing 300 big blinds deep early in a $3,500 buy-in World Poker Tour event. If you raise and someone calls and the flop comes king, seven, six, if you bet and they raise you, a lot of these recreational players will re-raise because they think they have the best hand, right? Ace-King on King-7-6 is pretty good. But if your opponent wants to put in 300 big blinds, it's not very good at all. You're probably drawing dead. And they don't quite realize that. So vastly overplaying hands like top pair is one very clear mistake that occurs. Another thing that happens a lot is players will raise pre-flop, continuation bet the flop nearly every time, but then play really straightforwardly on the turn. And against those players, you can just call in position a lot 
call almost every flop bet. And then win every time on the turn when they don't have anything, which is going to be about 60% of the time. So they end up winning the pot for free about 60% of the time. And then sometimes you have the best hand as well. So that's another mistake. Those are, well, this is an example of where people have a very clear hole in their game. They, their entire turn checking range is looking to check fold. And when that's the case, they're really easy to play against. You want to make sure you are using strategies that are not easy to exploit. And there are some spots that are just so easy to get to. If you're easily exploitable in those spots, that's going to be a pretty bad thing for you. So you want to make sure your checking ranges are not always just check folding. You want to make sure you're check calling sometimes and maybe check raising sometimes, depending on the board. Do you think that, I mean, as I look at both those situations, they seem quite different, but part of my theory is that a lot of us recreational players are, are motivated by fear. And in, in the first one, you know, we're, we're, we're overplaying top pair because we're afraid that we're just getting pushed off by a better player. And in the second one, we're checking too much because we're afraid that, you know, we don't want to play a big pot with a marginal hand or, you know, I mean, they're, they're different situations, but I'm just wondering what your thought is on why do you think that we have those big holes in our game? Is it just lack of reps? Is it just uh, less experience or is there some emotional, you know, construct in our brain that is limiting us? Well, I'm sure it's different for every player, but I definitely think that most players who play similar stakes or against similar opponents end up playing in roughly the same way. Um, For example, if you're playing $100 buy-in tournaments, you're probably fine just getting it all in with your top pairs every time because most people are going to be overvaluing hands in those terms. They think King Jack on King 7-6 is the nuts, and they're willing to get it all in. And in those smaller stakes tournaments, very often you're not playing very deep stacked. So you know, getting it all in for 75 big blinds is not a big deal. But whenever they start moving up to higher stakes tournaments where you are playing deeper stacked, getting in with those hands is a disaster. So they often are learning a strategy to beat a specific game in terms of big blinds. A lot of people don't realize that 75 big blind poker is very different than 300 big blind poker. And that's very different than 15 big blind poker. That, this is why tournaments are so hard because you have to learn to play all the stack sizes reasonably well if you have one stack size where you just butcher every time well that's not going to work out so well for you because you're going to have to play that stack eventually but people typically learn from their peers and their peers are often not winning at the higher stakes so they need to learn from people who are higher up than them sorry how how would you recommend then how, how do we without without the existence of a coach and maybe for some of us we don't have a great posse of people around us but how how do we start to recognize the holes in our own games i mean i think when people talk to me about it it's usually in the form of a bad beat i can't believe that donkey did this or i can't believe whatever you know we start to i don't think we're really accountable for our own play what advice would you give to those of us who are looking we we know we have holes in our games but we're having difficulty kind of identifying where they are what would you recommend well PokerCoaching.com is an easy way to figure out (laughs) those holes really quickly. But also, there are various poker forums online. I have one at PokerCoaching.com where you can go there, sign up for free, and post hands. And we have a good community there where reasonable, nice poker players will answer your hand questions because, you know, we're not a trolley community like some of the other forums out there where everyone's just trying to hate on each other. We're all actually trying to get better at poker together. So it's almost like a study group of like-minded people who are actively trying to get good. Um, But a lot of people do really want to pass the blame to someone else. They don't like accepting that their losses are their fault. Um, You have to be honest with yourself in all games and in life if you want to do well at it. And 
you can't just say, oh man, I continuously get unlucky because you do not continuously get unlucky. I mean, sure, you're going to run bad sometimes, but that is part of life and you need to be able to look at your hands and say, okay, this was a fine spot. Uh, usually people like to show the bad beats or they like to show spots where maybe they think about making some gigantic fold. Like someone sent me a hand today. Um, I have this thing called my inner circle where we, I get online for about two or three hours and people can just call in and ask questions. And I also present a webinar on a specific topic. Today it was how to play top pair when you get raised. Um, but one of the questions that was sent in was, this was from someone who was new to the inner circle. And inevitably when people are new to the inner circle, they either send in bad beats or they send in spots where maybe they should quote unquote should fold the second nuts or something like that. And the answer is just always no, you're going to go broke in these spots and that's okay. You're not supposed to win every time. And that's part of life. That's good. Yeah. I think but so anyway. Um, yeah. The question was, how do you, how do you get better if you don't have anyone to talk to? Well, find people to talk to. That's not an excuse. We're living in a world where you can get on Skype and make study groups from people around the world. I mean, my students, they, they have spot, uh, started their own study groups. Every three or four um, inner circle webinars, for example, the people get together and I, I make sure that new people are getting added to the study groups if they want to. Yeah, because I, I understand that a lot of people are, there, a lot of people are playing in rural areas or maybe they're playing online and they don't have anyone to talk to about poker. I mean, whenever I was a kid, I had no one in my life to talk to about poker. I didn't meet another poker player until I turned 21. So 18 to 21. I never met a single poker player in real life. And I, despite that, I had 10 or 15 friends who I talked to on Skype every day and we all got good together because we were all in somewhat similar situations. So the fact that you don't have anyone to pal around with in real life is not an excuse in my opinion. Very good. Yeah. So when you think about some of those areas where maybe you identified holes in your game, uh, maybe you could share a little bit, you know, what are one or two of those where you're, you used to have this hole, you used to struggle in this area and then how did you close that hole? How'd you get out of that? Uh, tell us a little bit about things that you had to overcome in your game that you've recognized. Well, when I was winning all those tournaments a long time ago, um, my natural inclination to just be somewhat aggressive in a lot of these spots, actually it wasn't my natural inclination. It's something I learned that raising preflop a lot and continuation betting a lot and betting the turn a lot is a pretty good strategy. People fold too much on all of those streets. I didn't quite realize exactly why what I was doing was working, but it was. And it was because I, people were folding too much. They had holes in their game that I was, I somehow naturally figured out how to exploit. And eventually people realize that you can't fold every continuation bet on the flop unless you have top pair or better. If you do that, you're just going to get run over. So opponents have eventually adjusted to now where most reasonable players are defending versus flop continuation bets quite well, especially if you are continuation betting too often. So you have to adjust and you have to learn to continuation bet in a more balanced manner. I realized people were floating me too often or calling my flop bets too often, or they were um, check raising me too often, or at least more than I was used to. And that was taking advantage of the fact that I was continuation betting too often. So I had a very giant hole in my game that just so happened to be taking advantage of the vast majority of the player pool. But once the player pool adjusts, you have to adjust. So I had to learn how to continuation bet with a balanced range. That was very important. Um, another thing I had issues with, with was the four bet and five bet warts that would often happen online where you'd raise, someone would re-raise, you'd re-raise, they'd re-raise. Um, I was very cautious when it came to putting in lots of money pre-flop, especially with the intention of folding. And if you're not going to be willing to bluff in those spots, well, your opponents should essentially never get it all in unless they have a really good hand because they know you have a really good hand, right? So I had to learn how to deal with that. And that came from just lots of practice and lots of study again. So you want to find spots where things are not going well for you. Like where do you end up folding a lot? 
or do you find yourself on the river and you're calling a lot and you're just wrong way more than the pot odds justify? And uh, that's kind of, it's, it's always a difficult thing, especially like, let's say on the river, you see that you're calling a lot on the river and you're losing a lot of the time. That could be fine because if you're getting four to one pot odds, you know, you need to be good 20% of the time. So if, if you're good 20% of the time, that means you're going to lose 80% of the time, right? So if you're good 25% of the time, you're actually making money despite the fact that you're losing three-fourths of the time. And that kind of thing is really hard to find in live poker. And that's something that the online players have an advantage on because they can look at their stats and uh, do programs like Hold'em Manager and realize, okay, I'm losing most of the time in the spot when I'm calling, but it's still profitable because we're getting the pot odds. Um, and it certainly feels dirty when you're making these calls and losing every time, but or almost every time, but that's part of the game. So anyway, everyone has holes and I've just constantly been striving to play closer and closer to a balanced strategy as possible. If you're playing balanced, you can then adjust to take advantage of whatever your opponents are doing wrong. And no one's really going to be able to do anything to take too much advantage of you. So in terms of broad frameworks, I mean, there's this, there's the whole GTO, you know, game theory, optimal approach. And then there's the whole exploitive approach. And maybe there's more that I'm not even aware of um, the way that I've heard it described in a sense is, you know, if you're playing against other players who are at that level where they're playing GTO, then you really want to focus more on GTO. If you're playing a game to where people can be exploited, you want to play more exploitable. Is that the right framework to think about this? Because I do have a number of recreational players that'll come to me and they're playing $50, tournaments. And they're talking about GTO strategy. And I'm just not sure that that's the right approach in those sorts of games. Well, whenever you're playing GTO, what you're basically saying is, I don't know what my opponents are doing wrong. And very often when you're playing very high stakes games, you will have no clue what your opponents are doing wrong if they're also very, very good. But very likely they have some tiny mistakes here and there. Like maybe they continuation bet the flop 5% too much. And you're not going to be able to pinpoint that in real time. But if you play closer to GTO than they are, you're going to end up making some small amount of money off of those players in the long run. So that's definitely a spot where GTO strategies are very strong. Um, In the smaller stakes games, though, usually you'll be able to figure out what your opponents are doing wrong. And an exploitative strategy means you are exploiting their mistake, right? So if they have mistakes in their game, you need to be getting out of line to take advantage of those. The problem, though, is that you don't really know when they're going to wisen up and adjust. And if they adjust before you adjust back, like let's say you think you can bluff this guy on the river every time, and it works seven times in a row, and then you try it again on the eighth time, and then the ninth time and the tenth time, and all three of those fail because the opponent realizes this, well, your exploitative strategy is going to end up costing you a ton of money. So exploitative strategies are very good if you know what the opponents are doing and they are oblivious to what you are doing. And that takes a particularly bad player to, be, to, to let you take advantage of them forever. So it's certainly good to exploit what players are doing wrong, but it's often hard to know what they're doing wrong. And it's often hard to know exactly what you need to be doing to exploit them. And it's hard to know when they're going to adjust. So it's, it's pretty, it's almost egotistical to say that I know exactly what this player does wrong. And I know that this player is never going to adjust to my exploitative strategy, just because in today's games, most people are at least somewhat competent. So how would you then characterize a general optimal strategy? I know you're always adjusting the table, but is it is your optimal strategy then defaulting to GTO and and exploiting where you see the mistakes being made or how do you how do you characterize that in those in those in that language? 
Well, there are player pool tendencies. These are often things that the general player does incorrectly. Like we were discussing earlier, a lot of people stack off a top pair way too lightly when playing deep stacked because they don't know how to play deep stacked very well, right? So that's going to allow me to, well, first, what do you do against someone who's going to stack off too often with top pair? Well, you want to play hands that can beat top pair. So that's going to lead to you splashing around a lot before the flop with stuff like suited connectors and pairs and whatnot, trying to make flushes and sets and two pair. So you want to play hands like that. And then once you make these hands, you are banking on the fact that these players are not going to be able to fold their big hands. If they start folding their big hands, well, now all of a sudden, all these splashy implied odds hands you're playing may become unprofitable because you're not getting paid when you do make your good hands. You're not going to make very many good hands. So when you do make them, you need to get paid. So um, that, that's a situation where I'm making adjustments right off the bat to take advantage of the opponent's likely mistakes. And uh, as long as they keep doing that, I'm, I'm going to keep splashing around. But my general thought when I'm playing against very good players is to show up and just play GTO. And against most recreational players, I'm not doing anything insane at the beginning of the tournament because I don't know what they're going to do wrong. I don't know what adjustments to make. So what I'm hearing is, is really, uh, in a sense, uh, GTO is, is the great default. And then there's certain tournaments that have certain player pools where you can say, okay, this is generally true, so I can exploit that in general and see and kind of react to what happens. And then there might be some player-specific exploitative opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I whenever I sit down to play, there I'm going to know some people at the table, and I'm not going to know some people at the table. And if I know the players at the table, I'm going to have some idea of how to play against them. And if I don't know the players, if it is a smaller buy-in tournament, then I'm just going to assume these players are often not that great right off the bat, which, you know, is perhaps too optimistic, but I am going to assume that they're going to, you know, for example, not fold their top pairs too often. And that may lead to me making some errors, but it's probably going to work out in general. So it definitely depends on the players you're playing against, but for the, for most people listening to this, most players you're playing against are going to have big holes in their game. So if you find general player pool tendencies that they, you know, things that they are doing wrong, you can probably just default to assuming they're going to make those mistakes. Excellent. So thinking about the tournaments that you play, say, let's just say in the, say the $2,500 to $5,000 range, what's your biggest edge? Um, I don't know. I just try to not punt off my stack too often. I think that's what it amounts to is I try to not give it away very often at all. There's definitely value in not busting in these tournaments. I think a lot of people get in their minds that, a lot of these tournaments are re-entry tournaments now, so they should be really gambling hard, but that's just not true. Um, you have to treat each entry as if it's an individual entry to a tournament. And very often buying in late to a tournament where you're near the end of the re-entry period, if the blinds are quite high, buying in for 15 or 20 big blinds is just not going to be a profitable situation for you because you have to pay rake. Rake is a real thing and you have to account for it. And you're just not going to have a big edge with a 15 big blind stack. So I think that's definitely a an edge that I have that a lot of even good players don't seem to be too aware of. Um, that said, in a lot of the really high stakes tournaments, the rake is minimal, so that may not be the case. But even then, you're not going to have a big edge with your tiny stack too often. So is that um, edge really related to? Would you would you classify that as patience, or would you classify that as being aware that a you know in a tournament a, a chip lost is worth more than a chip gained, or what? Why are you, why is your edge, you know, punting less? Whenever you, well, what it basically amounts to is that if you lose your chip stack now, you lose all future potential earnings that you would make with your stack. 
Right. That doesn't mean you should necessarily be playing tight. And there's certainly spots where I've bluffed off my stack, but that's just playing good, fundamentally sound poker. I think a lot of people, when they get short, they end up getting somewhat desperate or annoyed or whatever they are. And they either want to double up or be done. And that's just a horrible mindset. I mean, I remember one time at the World Series, this guy came to my table with something like four times average. He got unlucky twice to get down to two times average. And then he was just so annoyed and angry and just like gave a stack away. The, the, the other two times average stack, right? Because he was so angry that he lost half of his money. And that's just a horrible mindset. But I, I think I, I think I feel like I just generally play better than other players. Just make better decisions is what it amounts to in, in almost all spots. Do you and, think that's related to, I mean, you know, you're very, you're very mathematically sound. You're very logically sound. Do you think it's for you personally related to the fact that you can sort of separate the emotion from the logical smart decision? Or do you think you are just more well-grounded in what a good decision is? Yeah, I think I just generally know the right plays. I mean, it's like if you take a math test, if you're getting questions wrong, it's because you don't understand the fundamentals. And most people just do not understand the fundamentals of poker. And that's that's enough to, to give you a big edge if you understand the fundamentals. I mean, if you ask like one chess player, why does he win opposed to another chess player? It's because he makes better decisions. Right. And that, that's just it. I mean, he just, he just makes better decisions than the other players. And if you take one good player against another good player, neither player is going to have much of an edge. And that's usually what you're looking at when you're playing poker. But sometimes you do find players who just do not understand the fundamentals and make bad decisions. And that's when you're going to you end up with a big edge. So it's a pretty easy game. The all, I mean, if somebody says, how do I become a better player? The, the answer is just make better decisions. Learn to play fundamentally sound and then learn when to adjust from that in order to try to maximize your equity even more. But yeah, just learn, learn to play fundamentally sound. That's what it amounts to. Just be and better. Just be better. Yeah, just be better and realize that, uh, <laughs> realize that the swings don't matter. I think a lot of people really yeah. care about if they're up or down, but it just does not matter, especially in the short run. And the rough thing about live poker is that, you know, 10 years is the short run. Right. I mean, you have to realize if you're playing one tournament a week, 52 tournaments a year, that's what online players will play in two or three days. So your year of playing is equal to their one weekend of play. And right. if you ask online players, hey, have you ever lost over the course of a weekend? <laughs> and it's like, obviously, yes. That, that happens like three out of four times. And so that means that three out of four years, you should expect to be down. And I think a lot of people are not ready for that. And then right. even then, you know, whenever you have that one winning weekend, very often it does not cover those other three losing weekends. Right. So it's like you have, you have big wins and you have big successes when you win tournaments with lots of players. And or if you're playing small games, you know, you'll be more consistent. But what a lot of your listeners are playing for the most part is going to be small and medium stakes tournaments that have something like 100 to 1,000 people in it. And it's hard to win a 1,000-person poker tournament. There's a lot of variance in 1,000-person poker tournaments. And you have to be prepared for that. Right. And so that's something else that gives a lot of people problems. They, they don't like the idea that they're going to lose for three years straight. And you know, most live poker players, they quit after six months of losing because they just think the game's rigged or they can't beat it or it's all luck or something like that. But the reality is there is a lot of variance in this game and that's why the game still exists. Right. That's why we have things like Rec Poker Podcast because it gives us hope that we can actually become winning players or at least win a big tournament uh, because we're, you know, we actually still have a chance against people like Jonathan Little because uh, if it was completely all skill, we'd have no chance. Well, 
right? one thing I mean, you're going to find is that a lot of the online players play a lot of volume. A lot of the best players in the world at some point in their life have played a ton of volume, meaning they played a lot, a lot of tournaments. And they realize that if you play a lot of volume, you will eventually have somewhat consistent results. Right. If you don't play a lot of volume, you're not going to have consistent results. So what it amounts to is a lot of live players don't put in a lot of volume. And I mean, myself included now, nowadays I realize I don't put in a lot of volume and I should not expect consistent earnings. You'll hear a lot of people saying things like, yeah, I'm going to go play two five to try to, to, to pay for my tournament buy-ins or something like that. But mm-hmm. that's ridiculous because you're going to lose, you're going to have losing sessions and you, you cannot count on poker to, to make consistent money. And I think a lot of people have it in their minds that they should be able to do that or, Maybe in the past they have run decently well and somewhat consistent. And then whenever they inevitably don't, they just can't comprehend what's happening. And they start doubting themselves and they end up playing poorly or even worse. They, they play, they play, you know, they play worse poker and they end up maybe gambling too they end up gambling or playing too high. And then they end up going broke. So right. a lot of people are just delusional about what the game is. <laughs> right. We, All we, I try we, to do is show up and play my best, study a lot on the side and not worry about the swings. Yeah, and we you know, eventually, statistically, we will, all have, we will all have reversion to the mean of what our ROI is, but the problem is most of us never play enough to really realize what that full reversion to the mean is. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like that uh, year period you mentioned earlier where I just won every tournament, um, I could probably lose for like the next five years, L- lose every tournament I play for the next five years, and I'm still going to be up in right. terms of expectation even if I think I'm going to have like a 30% ROI or something like that. And right. that's kind of scary to think that I could just lose all this time and it would just be normal. Nothing to think, nothing to see here. Right. Because I mean, I've had my, my three or four gigantic successes and it's scary, but it is what it is. It's what I signed up for. Right. I think a lot of people don't understand that when you sign up for something, you don't really need to be complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I think a lot of people are entering the game, probably myself included, even though I'm a, I'm an actuary. I'm a statistics guy. I understand variance, understand probability. But, you know, when I first started playing poker six, seven years ago, you know, I mean, I didn't really understand the variance that was involved in poker. And I think most players entering the game don't. They don't really know what they're signing up for. Yeah, that, that's that's true. There's, um, I forget the name of the website. I think it's called PokerDope.com that has a variance calculator for tournaments. And you can basically enter something like, let's assume I have a 20% ROI and I'm going to play a thousand tournaments and it'll run the simulation 10 times and you'll see how often over that thousand games will be up or break mm-hmm. even or down or whatnot. Right. And you can run it over a short period of time, like 50 games, like a year, you know, one tournament a week. And you'll see it's, it's almost always down <laughs> right. over the course of a year. And that's playing with some small edge, which is reasonable for fast paced, small stakes tournaments. And um, that kind of thing is important. Understanding what you are signing up for is a very important skill in life. Yep. No, that's a really good point. As, as a new dad, you know, you're, you're signing up for a certain thing when you decide to do that. Yeah, it's tough. Like say, say, I mean, becoming a parent is an interesting one because you can't really know what it is to become a parent right. unless you take over someone's kids for six months or something like that. So that's a lot of fun. So, well, Linda, as we, as we wrap up here, uh, I want to respect your time too. What, I mean, we've, we've talked, we've talked about pokercoaching.com. We've talked about excelling with no limit, excelling at no limit hold'em, talked about a few other things, but uh, give us, give us kind of the, the pitch again on, on how people can plug into what you're doing, what you'd recommend for certain people at certain levels or how they just generally can connect with you. 
Well, if they want a book on how to develop fundamentally sound strategies, that was my most recent one. It's called Mastering Small Stakes No Limit Hold'em. This is another very big book. It's about 500 pages with lots and lots of range charts. And it basically teaches you how to think in terms of ranges and then how to adjust to take advantage of the players you're likely to encounter in the small stakes games. It's not an easy read. It's going to be a big, it's going to take you time, but I definitely think it is worth it if you actually want to win at poker. And that's going to also allow you to understand fully what we're discussing over at pokercoaching.com. Every once in a while, someone comes into pokercoaching.com and it's way too advanced for them because they're thinking, how do I play my pocket jacks? Not how do I play my range? And it's kind of like a wake up call and they're usually way, way behind, but that's okay. I have a book to get them up to speed. So mastering small stakes, no limit hold them is very good for those players. And like I said, get, you have a free week at pokercoaching.com. Go there, go through it all, binge it, cancel on me. I'm, I will not be offended. I try to make lots of stuff available for free. I post a lot of it on Twitter at Jonathan Little. Um, I have a weekly podcast where I go through a poker hand. I've been posting these daily one-minute videos on, I don't know, concepts. I call it little poker advice. Mm-hmm. And people have been having fun with those, and they're fun, so you can find they those there too. Yeah. Um, but I, I try to do a lot of free stuff. I have a blog that I post each week that's usually some sort of educational poker article about something. So that's at JonathanLittlePoker.com. I do a lot. But you can find it all on Twitter at Jonathan Little. That's going to be the best place if you want information to me. And if you ever ask me a question on Twitter, I'm happy to answer it. Um, you know, whatever you want. That's fantastic. Man. Yeah, you've been, you've been fantastic. I know. I mean, the support you've given for Rec Poker and, and contributing every week has been huge. People just love it. Hopefully that'll, that'll drive some traffic toward you. But I know it, at some level, you're just excited to contribute to the Poker Society and grow the game. And uh, it's, it, it comes across that way. And I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. I realized I would certainly not be where I am today without the help of the people who helped me whenever I first started playing the game. Like I said, I had those 10 or 15 people on Skype. They had no reason to help me, but they all wanted to help me get better at poker because I wanted to get good at poker. We were um, you know, trying to learn this thing together. And I realized that all the people who are trying to learn the game and get better at the game, they, they need someone to help them along the way because it is a hard game. And especially today where some people are really, really good at the game, you're trying to catch up. And I'm happy to help the people who want to take the time to better themselves and better their lives. Well, fantastic. Any final words before we let you go? No, just try to be lucky. <laughs> Going back to an earlier episode, just be lucky. It's, uh, be, be better and then be lucky. Yeah, be better and be lucky. That's all you need to do. Love it. That's your next book title. Great. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. Take, you taking the time to chat with me and and give us some insight into your world and what you have going on and some good tips on how we can become better as poker players. Uh, All that input is phenomenal as we're trying to grow the game. So thanks much for all of that. Uh, And with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, mention something on Twitter or Facebook, or get get in touch with me directly, stevefredland at gmail.com. If you have ideas, man, let me know. But we're going to keep continuing with some great interviews. We have some phenomenal stuff uh, coming up with Gareth James and Jordan Young and Trisha Cardner, Mike Schneider, uh, and I know I'm forgetting some other folks too. We got a number of them lined up, so uh, looking forward to continuing these as well. With that, take care, everybody.